0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. And I just add my thanks to the children as they head out the door uh, for leading us in worship this morning. Whenever we see the children lead in worship like that, it always reminds me of the verse that says that out of the lips of infants and children, God has ordained praise. Uh, And then we get to have the children share the gospel story with us about the king who came from glory, came from heaven down to earth and had a normal human birth. That's the that's the Christmas story right there. So maybe I can just say amen and give the benediction and we can go home. What do you think? No. Okay. Um, well, we're looking at a passage from Titus this morning. Uh, And if you brought your Bibles with you, you can turn there. Uh, We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 and reflecting on the idea that grace has appeared. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles uh, you can hear with me the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared offering salvation for all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good or zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks as always for your word, which you have given to us uh, by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this morning, uh, Lord, that you would open our hearts once again to receive what you have for us today. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. This time of year, Advent and Christmas, there are certain uh, scripture passages that are popular that that pop up each year around this time, from the end of November through the very beginning of January. They come around regularly. Isaiah is very popular at this time of year. We we really go back into the Old Testament and pull a lot out of the prophet Isaiah. There's some passages from Jeremiah. Uh, There's certain passages from the Psalms that we look at. Uh, We even get into some of the minor prophets sometimes, Micah and, and Zephaniah, and we get some exposure to them in sermons in December, which is great. These are passages that we call messianic passages because they are these Old Testament passages that look forward to the coming of the Messiah or the Christ into the world And they are prophetic, which means that they are God's word spoken to us through these people that God has chosen, these people who lived before the birth of Jesus Christ. And they tell us about the saving work of God, that what God is going to do on behalf of his people. And so these prophetic words, they look forward in time to their their fulfillment. Advent is about waiting and fulfillment. That's what this whole season is about. Waiting and fulfillment. And so these prophetic passages, these messianic passages, they find their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ, which we read about in the Gospels. And the Gospels tend to contain most of the other passages that are popular at this time of year because they tell the story of Jesus' birth and all of the events leading up to it. And so when you think about your favorite passages from Advent and Christmas, they tend to come from those prophets or from one of the Gospels, Luke 1 and 2 especially, Matthew chapter 1, we read about the birth of Jesus Christ. And all of these examples are perfectly suited for this time of year, which is why we hear them so regularly, why we come back to them every year in December. And that's a good thing because otherwise we may not actually hear some of these passages. I don't. Maybe some of you are reading Micah or Zephaniah on a regular basis. Uh, if you are, I say... Keep up the good work, uh, but a lot of us aren't going to those passages very regularly, and so this is the one time of year that we come to them and we look at them and we talk about what they mean for us. Why do the minor prophets still matter to us? And so it's a good thing that we keep coming back around to these different passages that we visit them uh, every year or two at Christmas time, so that we can be familiar with God's word from different places in the Bible. Now the flip side of this is that if we keep coming back to the same passages at this season every year, uh, even if only once a year, then there might be some other passages in scripture that help us interpret Advent and Christmas that we never get around to. A perfect example was Vince's sermon last week uh, from Genesis chapter three. We don't tend to turn to Genesis chapter three at Christmas time, and yet we have our very first messianic prophecy in all of scripture right there in Genesis three that the offspring of Eve is going to uh, step on the serpent's head and crush the serpent's head, but the serpent is going to bite his heel, right? That points us forward to Jesus Christ and his conquering of sin. And if I'd been a little more on top of it, I would have said we should have had a a whole uh, series this Advent about uncommon Advent passages. So maybe next year uh, we'll do that. Um, But today's passage, I think, falls into that category as well. This passage from Titus, these verses from Titus that we just read. These aren't verses uh, that I'm that familiar with, I'll just confess, uh, in the first place, and so much less have I associated them with the birth of Jesus Christ. And what we have here is the Apostle Paul uh, speaking and just to give us a little context he's writing this brief letter Titus uh, to his protege whose name is Titus um, and this is written around 64 AD the church is is growing the gospel is spreading across the Roman Empire uh, and it's sort of the second generation of the church of Christians right uh, and the old leaders are starting to pass away this is near the end of Paul's life and the Apostle Peter's life and so they're raising up the next generation of leaders and pastors uh, and church planters to continue to carry the gospel into the Roman Empire so that people might come to know Jesus Christ uh, and the joy of knowing him and the gift of salvation in him. And so Paul is writing this letter to Titus, uh, his protege, but someone he calls his true son in the faith. Uh, So you hear this close relationship that Paul has with him. And Titus is on the island of Crete, in the middle of the Mediterranean, and uh, the, the island of Crete at that time had a bad reputation. And so he's coming into this environment of people who would be hostile to the gospel, who wouldn't necessarily want to hear it or be receptive to it. And so what do you do if you're a church planter uh, and that's what you're called to? That is where you were called to. And so Paul is writing him this letter to to instruct him, to say, here are the things that you should do and and be uh, focused on, but also to encourage him uh, in what he's doing. Here is the reason that you were there. Here is what God is trying to do through you. And so Paul is writing to him there, and, and we come to this place in Titus, um, this one and a half page, blink and you miss it book. At, at the end of all of the T books in the New Testament, right? First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, right? And and it's just very easy to pass by it, but we have this really brief and profound statement in the middle of this book that interprets for us what happened at Christmas. What it was that God's people had been waiting for all of these years. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared. I love that image uh, that Paul uses there. That the grace of God has appeared. It's visible that we have seen it. That people have have actually witnessed the grace of God. Paul is really big on grace. If you read through the New Testament, you pick up on that, and that's not surprising for someone who has been set free by grace. Paul is writing about Jesus' birth as someone who can look back over their life and see just how much God's grace has meant to him, how he was once far from God but has been brought close. And he wants for other people to experience that same grace, that he has experienced. So what is grace? What is grace? It's one of the the foundational beliefs that we hold to as Christians. Uh, It's one of uh, the, I think, unique beliefs that we have as Christians that sets what we believe apart from lots of other belief systems and philosophies and religions in the world, this idea of grace. And yet I think it's also hard for us to explain sometimes. If somebody asked you to define grace for them, what would you say? What would your answer be? You don't have to tell me, just think in your heads. But what would you say? What is grace? How do you describe it? It can be hard to define It's one of those concepts where it seems that words often fall short. I've heard uh, several definitions for it over the years. The most common one in my experience has been God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Has anybody ever heard that definition of grace before? Yeah, God's unmerited favor. And and this is a fine definition for grace. It's it's technically true. It speaks to the fact that, that whatever grace is, it isn't something that we earn. It isn't something that we deserve. It is unmerited. It is unmerited. And it also recognizes God's affections for us, that God favors us meaning his people. So God's unmerited favor. And like I said, it's a fine definition. And and if you like it, I'm not trying to knock it, but I'll confess for myself, it's always left me wanting a little something more. It's almost too technical or or too straightforward of a definition or something. It's not a description that I would say, uh, as the founder of Methodism, John Wesley says, leaves my heart strangely warmed when I hear that. God's unmerited favor. There's some other definitions that we have here uh, that I would share with you that I've heard over time. Um, The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright calls it the generous and powerful love of God, which is directed towards us. The generous and powerful love of God, which is directed towards us. It's a little bit different spin on that same idea. Uh, The Irish rock band U2, uh, which you will learn is my favorite band, you may hear me quote them again at some point, Uh, but they have a song simply called Grace. And what they say in this song, the repeated refrain is that grace makes beauty of ugly things. Grace makes beauty of ugly things. That's always one that, that has resonated with me that I've really liked. And then a few years ago, I I heard a sermon uh, preached uh, where the preacher was talking about the idea of grace, and it said this, that grace means that God looks at our sin as if it never happened. God looks at our sin as if it never happened. That was one that that stuck with me as well, and the people I was with at the time, the elders from my church who heard it, uh, were really impressed by that definition, as if it never happened happened now that's not to say that grace just wipes away all of the consequences of our sin but in terms of our relationship with God it means that the restoration has been done it has already been accomplished that we have been reconciled to God and we do not have to earn our way back which is a good thing because we couldn't if we wanted to So if you take all of these ways of defining grace and you put them together, then I think we start to get at its meaning a little bit. God's unmerited favor. God's generous and powerful love which is directed towards us. Grace makes beauty of ugly things. Grace allows God to look upon our sin as if it never happened. I think the problem is that grace is too big and too profound and too beautiful of a concept to just sum it up in a one or two line definition. And the best descriptions that I've heard of grace are when someone tells a story where they have experienced it. If you wanna help someone understand grace, then give them a picture of it. Tell them about how you have experienced it in your own life, maybe share your personal experience. If you're a someone who has ever uh, offended someone else before, if you were someone who has ever hurt someone else before that you were close to, and you have been forgiven by them, a parent or a spouse or a dear friend, uh, whoever it may be, but if you have been forgiven and there was no way that you were ever going to make up that offense to them, then you have experienced grace And maybe even more than that, maybe not just being forgiven, but then being embraced, for that relationship to be restored, that it's forgotten, it's not brought up again, that the relationship is strengthened through their forgiveness of you, then you have experienced grace. I think this is why the parable of the prodigal son is such a a powerful uh, story in the New Testament. I think it's why it resonates with so many people. Because we see this younger son who squandered everything his loving father had given him and went out uh, to do his own thing, ran away, never to return, uh, and yet found himself uh, in the depths of despair and thought maybe, just maybe, if I return to my father's house, I can serve him there as a servant. At least it would be better than what I'm experiencing here. And yet there his father was waiting for him, looking for him. And runs to him to greet him, regardless of what that might do to the father's reputation, and puts the ring on the finger and puts the robe around his back and throws a huge party for him, has a big feast for him. This is the picture of grace that we are given in the Gospels. This is what grace looks like. If you want to help someone understand grace, let them see it for themselves. And of course, this is what God did for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Paul says, The grace of God has appeared. We have seen it, we have experienced it. And this is what we wait for at Advent each year. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time that Jesus Christ came into the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save the lost to save us from our sins, to suffer once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of grace. He is grace in the flesh. So if you want to help someone understand grace, including yourself perhaps, a good place to start is by looking at the life of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life and ministry, and of course his death and his resurrection. This is what grace looks like when it is lived out in the life of a human being. This is why it's so good and important for us as Christians to read through the Gospels so that we can take our time reflecting on the grace of God as we see it through the life of Jesus Christ. This is what all of the Gospels were written for because by reading them, we come to know Jesus Christ better. And by knowing Jesus Christ better, We come to understand grace more. We don't get this neat, black and white definition of grace in the Bible. There's no formula for it in the Bible. And I think that's because life is not black and white, and it's not neat and formulaic. But life is messy. And so instead, what we get is a person, the Son of God himself, who lives out grace for us, In the messiness of life demonstrates that for us, and that's what we see in the Gospels. So Paul goes on to say that this grace has appeared, Jesus Christ, offering salvation for all people and training us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And there's several points that Paul is making here in this statement that are worth exploring. So the first one, I think, is this, sort of the overarching point, is when you have received grace, when you have experienced it for yourself, that that should show up in your life in some way. It should change the way that you see and understand God, and it should change the way that you see and understand yourself as a human being in relationship to God. And it should change the way that you see and understand other people and even this world that we live in. What is life all about? Once you have received grace, then the answer to that question will change for you. Because life ceases to be about making a name for yourself, but it becomes about pointing to Jesus Christ, to lifting up his name instead of your own so that others might also see and experience the grace of God. And if we start to understand life this way, then it will change the way that we act and that we behave in this world. It'll change what we prioritize, what we are living for. So this change uh, in the way that we live has two parts to it, according to Paul here. There's sort of a negative piece to it and a positive piece to it. Paul is spelling out repentance for us. So the first one is this, this negative piece Uh, which I don't say negative, meaning in a bad way. It means taking something away from our lives, that we subtract something. Uh, Paul wants us to get rid of the harmful things in our lives, what he describes as ungodliness and worldly passions. There's a lot that could be included in these categories. For each of us, there are sinful behaviors that we need to give up. And they can range from pride to anger to greed to lust and everything in between, and many things else as well. These are sins that can get a hold of us and refuse to let us go. But through God's grace, we might be able to leave them behind. And then there are also things for each one of us that, that while maybe not inherently, inherently sinful, not destructive in and of themselves, have become idols for us. And they need to be put in our proper place, in their proper place. These are other ways that we struggle with sin. I've always thought about the fact that the first of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. And I think that the reason for that is because we all as human beings have a tendency to put other things in front of God. If that wasn't our natural human tendency, it wouldn't need to be the first rule, right? Uh, But because we tend to do it, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So for each one of us, there are things that uh, take a hold in our lives that we put in the wrong place. We make secondary things primary things. It's what St. August- Augustine calls uh, disordered loves, when we make things more important than they should be. And this could be something such as our own success in whatever our job is, it could be the success of our children, it could be our material possessions, it could be sports or other hobbies. But they're things that take on an outsized role in our lives, and they become more important than God. If you want to know if something has become an idol for you, ask yourself what place it holds in your life. Has it taken on an outsized importance? If you had to give it up, could you? If you had to give it up, could you? Again, these are things that need to be given their proper place in our lives. And it's in receiving God's grace that we might be able to do this. Now, I don't want to pretend that repentance is an easy task, even once we've received God's grace, or that that simple determination will eventually bring us success, that we can just sort of buckle down and say, okay, I've received God's grace, now I'm not going to sin anymore. Because it doesn't work that way, and you know that it doesn't, uh, if you look at your own life. What I have found, I found a C.S. Lewis, the 20th century British author, wrote a part in his book, Mere Christianity, that reflects on the challenges and fruit of working to leave behind our sinful worldly passions in a way that I have always found helpful. And this is what Lewis says here. He says, we may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, like perfect charity, will not be attained by any merely human efforts you must ask for God's help. And even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. But never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often, what God first helps us toward is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul, which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves, even in our best moments, and on the other that we need not despair, even in our worst For our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing to do is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Lewis is talking about the fact that sanctification, God's process of making us holy people, is a long process, it is a lifelong process. We don't just change overnight. And while we want to reach the goal and we trust that one day, by God's grace, we will, there is much to be gained for us in our relationship with the Lord along the way. So the negative piece of this is working to leave our sin behind. But the positive piece means embracing new behaviors and new ways of being in the world to replace the ones, the sinful ones we're leaving behind. We are to live self-controlled, Upright and godly lives in the present age, meaning now in this life. Now, for some of us, those words, uh, self controlled, upright, and godly lives, they bring up images of a stuffy and joyless and uptight Christianity. And we think, boring, I want nothing to do with that. That does not sound like the full life that I want to live. And I'm afraid that that's a way a lot of people outside of the faith see Christians. That being a Christian just means giving up everything in life that makes life fun or worth living. And of course, that is not at all what Paul means here. Christianity is a faith that embraces life. It embraces enjoyment. If the incarnation shows us anything, it's that this life in these bodies matters to God. It matters to God enough that he sent his son to take on our flesh, to live a life in this body, right? These bodies are are meant to be enjoyed so that we can have a fullness of life here on this earth. Our lives should be joyful. What Paul is getting at is to say that the God who created this life knows what is best for us and knows what is best for the world. And the rules and the boundaries that he has put in place are for our own benefit. They are for our flourishing in this world. And so to live this way that Paul describes here means living lives that demonstrate grace. The same grace that Christ demonstrated for us. It means to live a life of of self-giving love where our lives are lived for the glory of God and for the sake of others. It's just like the greatest commandment says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to live a life of grace. And so we take on self-controlled, godly lives. And that leads to the third point that I want to highlight in Paul's statement, which is that all of this is a part of offering salvation to all people. God wants to offer salvation to all people through Jesus Christ. It's it's there for everyone who would receive it, for everyone who would repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. No one is being left out here. God's grace is available to all through Jesus Christ. And this is important because doing good works, being zealous for good works, as our passage says, serves two purposes. One, it's a part of us experiencing God's salvation now in this life. We don't just wait to the life after this one, till Jesus returns, uh, to start to experience the fullness of life that God promises for us. God wants us to start having that fullness even now, today. The way Christ lived is the way that our lives were intended to be lived. And living the way that Christ did is how we experience God's best for us. Grace is what sets us free to live this way because it sets us free from our sin. And it's important not to reverse the order when we talk about grace and good works. Grace always comes first, and good works are always our grateful response to what God has done for us. We have been freed from sin, our lives have been changed, and our actions will reflect that. But we should never fall into the trap of thinking that our good works earn God's grace for us. Because, again, grace is a gift that has been freely given. And if you start to think that your good works will lead to God's favor for you, you're going to have two problems, one of two problems. One is you think you do a really good job at it, and you'll start to be self-righteous because you realize you're better than everybody else. So that's one pitfall you can have. The other one is that you fall into the depths of despair. Because you know you're not that good. And you'll start to think that you can never have God's favor. And this is why it's always important to get that order right. Grace always precedes our good works. When grace comes first, we are set free to live in communion with God and at peace with others. And then the section, second function of our good works is Our witness. Our witness. Our passage says that God is purifying him for himself a people zealous for good works. And this is what he was doing with Israel in the Old Testament. It's what he's doing now with the church. Our transformed lives are a witness to others of God's grace and his glory. And this witness is for the purpose of offering salvation to all people. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's as though Christ were making his appeal to the world through us. This is what we see happening in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we see this group of new believers who start meeting together in each other's homes for prayer and for worship, for studying the apostles' teaching, for breaking bread together. And it says that they uh, gave to one another as they had need. And so the people around it started to see this community that was forming, and they said, there is something different here than anything else I've seen, something different going on. And people were compelled by it, and they wanted to be a part of it. And they came to salvation through their relationship with this new community, the church. And we're told there at the end of Acts chapter 2 that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How we live as Christians and how we live together as the church is a part of our witness. And God uses it to draw people to himself. And then at last, Paul points us forward to Christ's return in our passage today. As Christians, we live in our own time of Advent. As Christians, we live in our own time of Advent. We have the benefit of Christ's first coming at Christmas, which we celebrate every year. But we also look forward to the fulfillment of our own promise that Christ will come again one day in glory to restore all things. And so we live the way that Paul describes here, looking forward to Christ's return, our Savior and our God. So friends, in this last week before Christmas, remember that God's grace has come to you through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And all of this was done to redeem us, to bring us back into relationship with God. And it was done to offer salvation to all people. How has your life been changed by knowing that? How has your life been changed by knowing that? And how do you want to see it continue to be changed because of God's grace? The grace of God has appeared. We have seen it. And we will see it again when Jesus returns in glory. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world, that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all so that we might be restored in our relationship with you. And I pray that whatever else we think about or focus on this Christmas time, that we would remember that truth, that you have given us your grace, that grace has appeared in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.